Hi everyone, before we start this week's show, which was recorded live in Ufcom, we want to let you know how you can come to one of our live events. Yes, we have a website. It has all of the places that we're going to be in the upcoming months. Some of them will be in the UK and Ireland. For the rest of you living in Europe, we are going to Gothenburg, Stockholm, Oslo, Amsterdam, Groningen, Geneva, Copenhagen and Antwerp. And this is very exciting. We've just announced two more dates. Can you guess where they are, Dan? Um, uh, you know where they are. Yes, I know. <laughs> that was me trying to fake not knowing. It's Paris and Berlin. Paris and Berlin. Wow. Yeah, we're so excited. Those tickets are going to go on sale this Friday. You can go to no such thing as a fish.com. We have a link to the British, Irish, and then all of these amazing European dates going as well. Do go for the Europe ones as quick as you can, by the way, if you're living there, because they are going quick. We expect Paris and Berlin will sell out in minutes, (laughs) is my prediction. (laughs) Well, let's see if that prediction comes true, Daniel. (laughs) But no matter what, we hope to see you there. Anyway, hope you enjoy this week's show. Again, recorded live in Ofcom. Okay, on with the show. On with the podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast this week coming to you from Ofcom! My name is Dan Schreiber and I am sitting here with Anna Chazinski, Andrew Hunter-Murray and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go, starting with you. James. Okay, my fact this week is that there is a man in Nepal who can lick his own forehead. (laughs) (laughs) And the reason I'm laughing to myself is because I know what he looks like. (laughs) So if you're at home listening to this, uh, then do Google it. And if you're in Ofcom sat in front of us, then here's what he looks like. (laughs) We we told you at home it was worth Googling. So weird. It's what, what's so bizarre about him is that when you hear he can lick his own forehead, you immediately think, oh my God, he makes his tongue really long. And little do you know, he makes his face really tiny. Yes. <laughs> well, brought- it's a little bit of both because he does have a really long tongue. You can sometimes see pictures where he sticks out. It's really, really long. He's basically, he's a 35-year-old bus driver from Erlabari in Nepal. And he says that he tries not to do this too often because he scares the children. Yeah. Well, he says he's not been allowed to do it at work when he's on the bus. Yeah. He says that A, the children get scared. And then with, uh, he talks about adults. He says, even adults can lose consciousness <laughs> when they watch me in action. Uh, but can you guys lick your nose with your tongue? No. It's quite rare, isn't it? That, oh, Wow. Wow. Again, at home, just Google pictures of people licking their nose with their tongue and you'll see what that is. um, I didn't realise it had a name, so 10% of people can do it, including me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's called the Gorlin sign. Didn't know it had a medical term. Have you ever tried doing the the full forehead? I think I have to work up to that. Okay. (laughs) It's really interesting, though, because it... it, So this this guy is kind of... Gurning, yes. are we saying? It's, you know, gurning the sport where you scrunch your face into an amazing shape and you surprise people and win awards. You know, um, gurning the sport. Gurning, yeah. <laughs> the, the Olympic sport of gurning, yeah. Um, so at the British and world, obviously, gurning championships, because nowhere else does it, um, makeup is banned, but manipulation of false teeth, if you have them, is permitted. Oh. Yeah. 
and it really helps if you don't have uh, many teeth. So this guy uh, in Nepal has only one tooth, I believe. Oh, has he? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And there's a Gurning world champion called Peter Jackman, mm. not to be confused with Peter Jackson, um, who <laughs> he's won the championships four times and he had all of his teeth removed so that he could improve wow, his technique. Really? Yeah. Um, yeah. Really? Yeah. There's an organizer that said age definitely helps in the competition because your skin is much looser when you um, when you age. It allows you to manipulate and crease up in ways. So you have an advantage if you're yeah. older. And I should say this world championship or British championship um, for the whole world, but only British people take part. <laughs> um, and in fact, only people from Cumbria take part. <laughs> <laughs> Even the people of Devon look down on the... I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> You know, in 2014, the two runners-up were both Swedish. So oh, were they? Oh, okay, I didn't know that. Uh, but it takes place in the Egremont Crab Fair. And they say it's been happening since 1267. Uh, the fair, it seems, might have been happening since then, on and off, because um, we know that King Henry III granted a royal charter for a fair... We think probably the Gurning hasn't taken part for all that time, although there is a newspaper article in 1852 that says it's an ancient practice. Mm. So it has definitely been going on for a long time. Yeah. Oh. yeah. I was reading an obituary of a guy called Lenny Wells. This is an obituary in The Guardian. He died in the year 2000, and he was known for gurning in various TV adverts. He was very good at gurning. It said, um, although he was also a keen rugby fan and devoted family man, it is for the unique rubberiness of his lips and cheeks that he will be most fondly remembered. <laughs> and- <laughs> There was one, uh, there was, uh, then they interviewed people who'd taken part in contests with him, and one of the guys said, uh, this one time Gordon Blacklock, another competitor I'm sure you've heard of, uh, another Gurner, <laughs> Gordon Blacklock was ahead on points, but then Lenny stepped up and pulled a face like a rhino's anus. I tell you... <laughs> is, that, is that a technical term? <laughs> technical t- I tell you, the audience went bizarre. Oh, man, I- <laughs> Love to hear the commentators. <laughs> I like him. He's coming up the back like a rhino's anus. He's... There was, the, in fact, the I think the greatest champion of all time is Anne Woods, who has won the woman's gurning title twenty-eight times. Yeah. That's twenty-eight years of gurning. She missed one crab fair when she uh, was expecting a baby, and it, it, probably so... pulling a lot of faces then as well. I guess, <laughs> right? <laughs> And in 2010, she collapsed after four minutes of intensive gurning and had to be rushed to hospital. So there are injuries that happen in this sport. And actually, um, Anne Woods died quite recently as well. She died in 2015. And I read her obituary and it said that she always entered the gurning arena to the tune of You're Gorgeous by Baby Bird. (laughs) (laughs) Arenas. Like how many people are going to watch this thing? Um, we've wow. mentioned before um, Mr. Ugly from Zimbabwe. So there's an annual Mr. Ugly competition in Zimbabwe, which is, is very similar to the, to the Gurning. Um, and in 2015, there was a huge controversy because the, the guy who won it, um, the runner-up, who was a previous winner and had been thinking he would win it again, the runner-up said, it's not fair. His ugliness is based on the fact that he's got a lot of teeth missing, whereas my ugliness is natural. Um, <laughs> and the winner said, you know... Yeah, suck it up. You know, he said, he said they should just accept I am uglier than them. He can only suck it up if he's no teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Get your teeth removed. Have some commitment. Like, you know, the aforementioned champion. Yeah. Yeah. Get them out. Um, on tongs, because this guy can lick his own forehead, um, there's some new research has found that weightlifters have stronger tongs and runners have better tongue endurance than normal people. Wow. Why? Isn't that amazing? That... Why? 
Are they, do, do they, I've, I've actually never watched weightlifting. Do they have a little tiny little weight that they lift with their tongue <laughs> while they're doing the big ones with their arms? What they thought is perhaps it's because you're working out more, you're, all of your muscles are stronger. Um, but actually having good tongue muscles is really important because it keeps your airways open. So if your tongue is stronger, then it means it keeps your airways open and maybe it's better for running, better for keeping more oxygen in your body, stuff like that. I think it's a very specific thing the way you pronounce tongue um, from your part of the world and it just oh, takes yeah. so long to get over the fact that it's tong and you're just thinking well my fire tongs are perfectly strong I don't know why do you genuinely own fire tongs? of course I don't have a fire um, <laughs> I just jab the radiator with them sometimes <laughs> Um, giraffes have good tongues, really good tongues. They their tongues are half a meter long, what? and at least I think half a meter. So that's what yeah. that's longer than my forearm. Wow! Yeah. How much it's do we see? Is that is that outside or is no? That no, it's not outside. So quite a lot of it goes back into them, I think. But okay. you know, there's a decent amount outside. If you've seen a giraffe, you know, lick a leaf off a tree, can uh, they can they lick their ears? Yes, they can yes, lick their that's ears. Right. Yes, and they're also black or purple their tongues, and they think that's because they spend twelve hours a day with their tongues out. And they would be sunburned on them if they didn't have sun protection. So that's why they have black tongues. Wow. Dark tongues. Wow. I'm just really self conscious about saying that word now. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> there, there was a doctor uh, in the, I think, the 19th century. There was a big debate over how you could prove that someone had died. And there was a, I think he was French, doctor called uh, Laborde. And he said that you can save people who only appear to be dead. You know, they, they've fallen into a swoon or they might be unconscious, but they are revivable. And he said the way to do it is to pull their tongue rhythmically for three hours. <laughs> and he, uh, he cla- he imagine cla- doing that for two hours and 59 minutes and then they go... <gasps> <laughs> He swore. He swore that he'd done this. He he said he'd saved people doing it. He say he said he'd saved an unconscious cow and a bulldog that had swooned. Um, and he invented a tongue pulling machine, which was you know which pulled the machine. And the, there was an assistant whose job was to turn the crank and pull the tongue for three hours. Oh my god! Oh. I know. So he he resigned because he was bored, and he was replaced with an electric tongue pulling machine. So oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, there's a hockey player called Brad, uh, an ice hockey player called Brad Marchand. And he has been ordered to stop licking his opponents. Right. Uh, he's done this more than once, but the, <laughs> the most recent person he licked was opposition player Ryan Callahan. And a merchant has been described in his official biography as the little ball of hate. Hmm. So Wait, is that the sorry the liquor or the licky? That's the liquor who okay. was that, <laughs> and basically it's his job to kind of start fights and stuff like that. That happens in hockey. But the guy who he licked said, "I don't know what the difference is between spitting in someone's face and licking it," which is quite a good point, I think. Uh, and then the person who did the licking said, "Well, he punched me four times in the face." <laughs> <laughs> It's six and half a dozen, isn't it? <laughs> do you know how you stick your tongue out when you concentrate? Or you may mm. have done as a child. Some like, people do, I definitely yeah. did. And it's much more common in children. And I was reading an article by a neurologist who said he thinks he knows why we do this. And it's partly because if you're really, really concentrating, number one, it's because it stops the distraction of taste or texture within your mouth. So if you just hang your tongue out, I guess it's not really touching anything. It's not tasting or touching anything. But number two, he said, it's because breastfeeding babies stick their tongue out to push their mother's nipple away when they're full. And so that's what we're doing when we're concentrating. We're saying, leave me alone. I've got stuff to be getting along with now. Wow. (laughs) I'll be honest, next time I stick my tongue out, I won't be able to concentrate quite as much as I could before. (laughs) 
Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Andy. My fact is that in 1903, you could buy a gramophone record made of chocolate, which you could play a song on and then eat the disc. Ah. And somehow we have lost this technology. (laughs) But I think the technology was never great to start with, was it? You could play a song on a piece of chocolate. That much is true. Maybe. You can play a couple of times. I mean, they weren't great turntables either because they were designed <laughs> for chocolate records. But so it was, it was, this was made by a company called the Stolwerk Chocolate Company and there were tiny turntables and small chocolate records. It was for children, basically. It was a children's toy. And you could play the song a couple of times and then when you got bored, you could just eat the song. I and I think, did they put, they put foil on the chocolate, didn't they? And it was the foil that they put the ridges in, yeah. which acted ah. like the record. And then but, you could peel it because you don't want to be, you know, degrading your chocolate as you play a record. No, quite. And you you say that it was a children's toy. Um, it was advertised in the French magazine La Nature, and it specifically said, "This is not a toy." <laughs> <laughs> what kind of miserable person do you have to be to pretend your chocolate gramophone record is not a toy? <laughs> Did it take off? No. Presumably you don't have any chocolate records. Did you think you were the only one in the world who hadn't picked up on this technology? Dan's got a massive hot chocolate record collection. (laughs) I'm from Australia. Maybe it hasn't reached yet. Maybe we're getting it next year. It's No, but you know, sometimes in the annals of history, you can have 50 years of of chocolate records. You know, the Beatles were released on chocolate and then then it goes. I think it might have been sort of a limited edition thing. And they tried lots of other chocolate-based things, this company. So they also produced Stolwerk, they produced a chocolate clock and a chocolate train, which wow. I think, cho- not train a fo- was not a, a toy, not a, tra- not a full on train, people weren't going around in chocolate trains from Edinburgh to London. What a whimsical world we could have lived in. I'm afraid there's more delays, someone's eaten the mode of transport again. There must be a better way. All the the sleepers are Twixes and there are Kit Kats for the main rails. And and there are little Maltesers puffing out of the train. Oh, nice. Okay. It's nice. We all want to live in this world now, don't we? Yeah, very cool. It's not real. It's not real. (laughs) But there were toy trains. I'm not quite sure how they worked. But yeah, a chocolate clock? I don't understand how that works because that's not a very useful clock. That's not going to last a long time. No, but, no, uh, no. So this is why they didn't take off. <laughs> I, actually, I didn't even look up what the oldest piece of chocolate still existing is. There must mm-hmm. be some. They keep finding, you know, bits of chocolate from the Antarctic expeditions. The Antarctic expeditions. Um, just back to gramophones. There is a gramophone that still is in Antarctica. It's been there for over a hundred years. Scott of the Antarctic took. A gr- two gramophones with him. <laughs> two gramophones. Yeah. He oh. was a fucking idiot, wasn't he? I mean, <laughs> I don't even claim to feel sorry for him. <laughs> wow. I can imagine them in the tent at the end. It's like, we're so cold and hungry. Can we eat the gramophone? <laughs> you brought the chocolate one, right? <laughs> What was he thinking? He brought hundreds of records. That's amazing. Yeah, and so the idea was, because obviously they were in the hut for ages, so um, Sherry uh, Gard, who wrote The Worst Journey in the World, he said that after dinner every night, that's when the records would go on, 
and one was left there and one made it back. I've seen it. it there was an exhibition at the Natural History Museum in London. I went to see it. And um, they've actually made an album of the best of songs uh, that went along as a record. Yeah. But they couldn't play the records when they were out in the middle of nowhere because they had no power. No, because they, they had Scott's hut. So it was in the hut. So it was they before they it. went probably out in the middle yeah. of nowhere. Yeah. Them, you could have wind-up gramophones as well. Oh, the winding. Okay, the Captain Oates, I know your hands are very cold, but would you mind taking them out of those gloves to wind up the gramophone <laughs> just one last time? And then I promise you can go outside. <laughs> So this is, uh, this is quite a cool thing. Uh, you know the new five-pound notes, the plastic ones? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. You can play a gramophone record with a five-pound note. As the stylist, do you mean? Yeah. Oh, so wow. you set the record spinning. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's footage online of someone doing it, and um, it doesn't produce a brilliant sound, and, and you need, a, you know, you need a, an amplifier and stuff, but you can do it. Oh, yeah, you wow, could really? probably use that five-pound note to buy an actual stylus. <laughs> <laughs> Um, do you know that? I couldn't believe this. There were basically iPods in the 1920s. No, uh, I don't believe that either. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the word basically did a huge amount of heavy lifting there, didn't it? <laughs> what did they have? These were things called Mickey phones or Mikey phones. They were little music players. 180,000 of them were produced in Switzerland. And they were basically, they were tiny little music players, like gramophones or phonographs, that you could carry around in your handbag. And they measured two by four inches. And the only tiny thing about them was that they measured two by four inches when they were packed up, but then whenever you got somewhere, it was quite a complex assembly job to build a 10-inch record player. So it couldn't play straight away. But even so, these That's portable... Awesome. That's really cool. Tiny little music players. Very yeah, cool. very cool. Yeah. Yeah, Edison, when he... Um, sort of came up with the phonograph, which was the precursor to, to gramophone records, I guess. He thought that their main use would be, or one of their main uses would be phonographic books, which will speak to blind people, he said, without any effort on their part. It's basically so he, a podcast. It's an audiobook yeah. or a podcast, yeah. Wow. wow. Uh, the phonograph, it recorded as well, didn't it, as playing. I think that was a point of that. Uh, and one of the main things they used it for was to record the last words of the dying Wow. That's yeah. so much pressure on someone who's dying to nail your last words. Yeah. yeah. And then what if you don't go for another hour? You just oh, gotta sit if... silently going. <laughs> <laughs> it would also make you very paranoid, wouldn't it, if you just felt a little bit peaky and then your your wife started getting the gramophone rigged up in the corner. <laughs> Honestly, darling, it's a cold. <laughs> Okay, we need to move on to our next fact. It is time for fact number three, and that is Chazinski. My fact this week is that in the early 1700s, the most popular British guide to the history, language, and culture of Taiwan was written by a man who didn't speak the language, had never been there, and knew nothing about it. Uh, this was in 1704, and this—I'd well, say Taiwan. So it was Formosa then, uh, which was what it was called, and it was called the History of Formosa, and it described in huge detail the practices that these people, who would have seemed so foreign to the people of Britain, the practices that the Formosan people got up to, their language and everything. It was written by a guy called George Salmanitzar, and it was completely fake. He was a white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Frenchman who'd never left Europe, and. No, to this day, we don't really know what his background was or what his real name was because George Salmanatza was a, was a fake name. And he just made this up. He, he convinced them that his pale skin and his appearance of being of, like French and his French accent were <laughs> because in Formosa, the upper classes live in underground palaces so they never see the sun. 
which so he'd never got. That's a good excuse, though, isn't it? It's yeah. really, it really quick thinking. Yeah. Yeah. He's, so he had this big showdown with the Royal Society of Scientists, and they were all questioning him for ages about right. So okay, if you really are from Formosa, what about this? So uh, Edmund Haley of Comet fame asked him, <laughs> "How long does the sun shine down your chimneys?" Because, and that's a really like, revealing question. Yeah, but no, come on. Like, if you went on holiday to Spain <laughs> and they said to you, yeah, but Andy, are you really from England? How long does the sun shine down your chimney? <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be stuffed, wouldn't I? Yeah, exactly. I w- yeah. So how but, is he supposed to know it? Because that answer would have revealed if he knew where it was on the planet. Did he have he, an answer to it? Or? He said, we have bent chimneys so the sun doesn't <laughs> shine down them. Yeah, that's it's, a good answer. Brilliant. Spiraled, wasn't it? It was yeah. spiraled uh, chimneys, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he's an amazing character. Yeah, he said of Formosa that the men walk naked except for a gold or silver plate to cover their privates. He said that they executed murderers by hanging them upside down and shooting them full of arrows, and annually they sacrificed the hearts of 18,000 young boys to gods and priests to eat their bodies. Yeah, which people did say to him, uh, if that is true and they sacrificed that number of people, you're not going to have any people left on this small island. And he didn't have a good answer to that, but he said <laughs> Formosans always sleep upright. And he actually then saw this through because he had to live the habits of them. Um, so he, <laughs> he must have regretted that. He used to, I think he sort of sat. So he said a lot of Formosan sleep standing up. And then he used to leave a candle on in his room so everyone could see that overnight he was still erect in his chair because he was a Formosan, so he couldn't sleep in a normal bed. Bizarrely, he said that they all eat food raw things like fish raw and he was saying that um formosa was part of japan which is a bit weird because it was actually belonged to china then but he said it was part of japan so that's strange that he kind of predicted sushi yes 300 years before oh, it yeah. happened well, yeah. so he got basically formosa was his third go at trying to convince people he was from somewhere else so <laughs> he was originally from france his first bash at it was saying he was irish so he would go around saying, I'm Irish. But the thing is, everyone knew the Irish. So they'd be like, oh, so what do you... And he was like, I have no idea. So he quickly, that stuff up on him. Oh, have you been to the Dog and Duck in Dublin? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> then he said he was Japanese. Right. And then that failed on him as well, because Japan was getting too much. People had been traveling there too much. He needed to find somewhere else. Formosa was the third one that he finally landed wow. on, which was useful to him. Another time in Formosa, there was a lot of Jesuits, um, Catholic missionaries, uh, and they knew everything that was happening there. And so when he came along, they were going... No, no, really, that doesn't happen. But weirdly, because no one trusted Catholics at the time, <laughs> they all trusted this one guy over all the Jesuits who were saying, no, this is bullshit. That's so funny. Well, at least the reputation of the church has recovered, so that's something. <laughs> but we should emphasize that this was a big deal, this book. It, well, he wasn't just a weirdo with a pamphlet. This was a book that was so believed that he lectured, he was invited to lecture on Formosan culture and language at Oxford University. So he invented wow. the entire language alphabet and all completely new alphabet a linguist studied it to see how consistent it was and agreed it was definitely a language to the extent that it remained in lots of language books until the mid 19th century and people were still saying this people is people weren't doing GCSE Formosan were they <laughs> <laughs> can I tell you quickly just something amazing about Formosa yes. itself so Formosa now Taiwan if you were in Formosa Taiwan and you dug through the ground and you dug all the way through the earth onto the other side the antipode, as it's called, mm. yeah. you would land in a place called Formosa, Argentina. 
Is that right? Yeah. No. By total coincidence. Not by a coincidence, surely. Yeah, by coincidence. Yeah. There's no relation that as far as we can see between the two places that you would what? land. Yeah. There's a place in Argentina called Formosa. I mean, let's all definitely Google this after the show. Sure. But... <laughs> that is incredible. If that remains in the episode, that means it is true. And that is unbelievable. If not, you're welcome, everyone. <laughs> yeah. An exclusive. <laughs> it would be around Argentina, so that does make sense. Oh. So we're in Devon at the moment, and it seems like Devon is a bit of a hotbed for absolute fantasists. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so Andy, you definitely know about Tuesday Lobsang Ramper, don't oh, you? Yeah, he was oh. from Devon. Was he? Of yeah, so he was. Yeah. He, was, he um, did a fraud saying he was a Tibetan monk, and that was still happening in the 1950s. Mm. He was saying that. Um, he said that he came from Tibet. He made up a language. Um, when they gave him actual Tibetan and said, why do you not recognize this? He said that he'd been so badly tortured during the war, he'd blocked out all knowledge of the Tibetan language. <laughs> um, and, and then afterwards, when they realized he wasn't actually Tibetan, he said, oh, no, no, no. Actually, I was possessed by the spirit of a Tibetan monk after I fell out of a tree in London while trying to take a photograph of an owl. Yep. <laughs> He was, his name was Cyril Hoskins, and he was an unemployed surgical trust manufacturer from Devon who claimed to be an incredibly ancient and powerful Tibetan monk. Yeah. And he wrote 15 books. He wrote um, Travels with the Lama and, um, like, Lamas and Dalai Lama. And then he wrote one, Living with the Lama, which was dictated to him by his cat, um, <laughs> Mrs. Fifi Grey Whiskers. And then he moved to... <laughs> He later, he moved to Ireland and then Canada blatantly for tax reasons. <laughs> kind of lived there. Yeah, he was great. Yeah, and then back in the 18th century, you had someone called Princess Caribou, who was also from Devon. Okay, and she turned up at someone's house near Bristol, speaking a fake language and said she was from somewhere in the east. And again, she was from Devon and she made the whole thing up. <laughs> she was from, I looked into it, I spotted that as well today. She was from somewhere that is a 30 minute drive from where we are right now. A little place yeah. called Witheridge. Oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But even the people of Cumbria look down on the people of Witheridge. <laughs> Uh, but wow. it was a sort of tradition that travel writing merged into fiction in, yes. from about 1600 to 1900. You couldn't quite tell. There was basically three categories. There was Gulliver's Travel Style, this is a fictional travel account, and then there were proper travel journals. And then there were loads of people who were just kind of making stuff up, but <laughs> pretending it was true. And there was the Travels of Sir John Mandeville. Uh, actually, so this was, this was much earlier, but he was almost the precursor to all of these. These appeared in about the 1360s, and they were taken as legit travel books for over 300 years. So Christopher Columbus used them as a complete reference book, like all the great travelers of later ages did. And they covered China, India, uh, present-day Indonesia, and they told these amazing stories of like uh, islands, first-hand accounts of people who had the bodies of humans in the heads of dogs, or people who uh, whose mouths were so small that they had to suck all their food through reeds because they just had a tiny hole for a mouth um, and he yeah. said all the Mongols eat their fathers as soon as they die we went, oh, okay, <laughs> oh, great. that was the thing that Salmanazar claimed he claimed that he said he was um, divorced and that he was a reformed cannibal because in Formosa husbands were allowed to eat their wives <laughs> if, oh. if there was adultery that had happened if their wives had committed adultery you were allowed there was to always just... a lot of cannibalism going on in these stories weren't there yeah. it was like the yeah. idea of weird foreigners would mm. eat humans although the, the guy who you're talking about John Mandeville, he um, found one group of people whose only source of nourishment was the smell of apples. 
<laughs> and he so, also found, he said that in Ethiopia, um, all the people had only one foot, but that foot was so large that it shadowed them from the sun. <laughs> oh, cool. Well, how does that work? Wow. You, they would lie on their back and hold their massive foot. Yeah. Oh, wow. It was awful when they wanted to go bowling. <laughs> 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 That's pretty cool. We, should, yeah. we Just, should evolve like that. This is slightly off topic, but uh, P.L. Travers, the writer of Mary Poppins, she was into... She had a- one massive foot, didn't well, she? <laughs> she? She was into a lot of esoteric stuff, and she went on a trip at one point with a, a spiritual guru who she looked up to where they were searching the earth for a giant footprint that was said to be made by an intergalactic giant who used Earth as a stepping stone as he was hopping <laughs> through the universe. And she was convinced there was a giant footprint that would be... Wow. I read that in a comic. Writing? I don't know if that's... Writing? Sorry? When was she writing? What, 30s, 40s, 50s? Yeah. yeah. But she was she was part of a very big spiritual, very lobsam uh, ramper People kind of movement. People believed any shit, didn't they? Until almost now. Yeah, you're right. Everyone's making really fact-based, sensible decisions these days. (laughs) Thank God we've come so far. (laughs) It's time for our final fact of the show, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that ahead of breeding season, Iceland publishes an illustrated catalogue of the country's most eligible sheep. Yeah, so this is called the Ram Registry. It's an annual catalogue that they make available. It starts online, then they do a physical publication. And it, um, it profiles, in, this, in the last year that's gone, 44 rams. They do colour photos. They do pedigrees, breeding. It's all these stats. It tells you everything mm. you need to know. Um, it's a 52-page uh, catalogue. They have an obituary section for rams that have passed away who were... I, th- I think if Tinder had an obituary section, it would be more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's true, but it has stuff like how many how many they're expected to sire. It's just it's the ultimate guide that you need for when it's breeding season. You want I want that, and that's how they that's how okay. they spend their money. This thing is twenty years old. This registry it's, it's well established. There's a ram in this year's called Strumper, and Strumper they say the farmer who owns him says Strumper he is aware of his environment and knows exactly what's expected of him. <laughs> he so doesn't do- call himself a stripper. He calls himself an exotic dancer. <laughs> but the, the, they get they get graded for leadership as well. So there yeah. are these there are these sheep which are called flock leaders, and they automatically act as leaders to the rest of the flock. And they um, that's very important because they go off into the mountains, and you need a, a ram in charge who right. sort of. Um, you know, when the weather's going to be bad, or when they can foretell the weather. So when they think the weather's going to be bad, they lead the flock to shelter and safety. Wow. Yeah, okay. and the sheep, which are the, the particularly intelligent subbreed, are called Icelandic leader sheep okay. because they show leadership. Uh, is that why? Or did I don't you think that's why, but it's a very nice coincidence, isn't it? <laughs> and then, but the thing is, unlike day snaps, they never get to meet the lady um, sheep, do they? Because basically, it's a sperm donor kind of thing. Oh. So even when their swipes on, they're just like, "Oh no, all you're going to get is my sperm." Oh my god! Thank Imagine. God Tinder doesn't run like that. <laughs> I've never used Tinder, but uh, is that not how? It I works? used to, but I never just popped my sperm in the post. <laughs> <laughs> the person who I swiped right on me. I think that might be a relief for a lot of women on Tinder. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God, a cup of sperm. Just a picture of me with a lot of stamps. I'm ready. (laughs) First class mail. Wait, is that first class mail both ways around? (laughs) But 
they're, they're into sheep, aren't they, in Iceland? Oh, yeah. They sure are. have three times as many sheep as people, and they have this amazing ceremony every, uh, every winter. So basically the sheep in Iceland, they have this weird farming system where all different farmers, different herds of sheep are free to roam with each other up on the mountains. So they all intermingle, which is a massive hassle when it comes to bringing them back down to put them in your pen because they're all mixed up. And so they just recruit everyone. So if you're a tourist in Iceland at, you know, pen time, and uh, it's got a name, I think it's called Retir time. Uh, and then you go and you help round up sheep and you have to shimmy them down the mountain. You put them into this big enclosure with a central bit in the middle. And then you, uh, they've got little marks on their ears that show which farmer they belong to and if you see a mark you grab it by the ear or by the scruff of its neck you lift it up and you chuck it into the bit of that enclosure <laughs> you lift it up and chuck it you lift it up and throw it and it's very strong alright <laughs> the sheep are really uh, like they're really perfect in Iceland aren't they they don't have any kind of other genes they're like they've been there since the Vikings and they've never had alright Captain Aryan over there <laughs> <laughs> no well, one sullied these genes. <laughs> well, this is what they think. They think that because they've been there for the whole time, they're not sullied by any other blood. And um, in 1878, they imported a single English ram into Iceland and they had to kill 60% of Icelandic flocks. What? Because they spread disease and parasites no. to the flocks. English tourists, best of the world. <laughs> um, <laughs> They, they they love eating the sheep as well, as yeah. obviously because you know sheep are eaten. Um, but they, there's a thing called svith, which is half a sheep's head. That's a delicacy, um, and they make sour testicles and brain jam. Uh, well, they, so I've, I found out the best way to eat the boiled sheep's brain, which is something that is a real delicacy. And this is because there's an MP. I think he might have been the foreign minister or the home secretary or something. He's a guy called. Uh, why didn't I practice this name before I came on stage? Uh, he's called Osser Skarfjordsson. Osser Skarfjordsson. Well, I think uh, he's safely anonymous. That's the main thing. <laughs> <laughs> he's not sat at home going, why are they talking about me, is he? <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> Wouldn't want to be that guy, whoever he is. <laughs> But he was, in 2013, he was served some sheep's brain at a party, and he said, this is amongst the best boiled sheep's head I've ever had. They stuck to my gum as proper heads should. And so that's what they're supposed to do. They st- stick to the gum. And then he was asked, really, but was it the best? And he was like, okay, look, it wasn't the very best. The head should have been more fermented, because we from the West Fjords prefer our sheep's head so fermented that we can drink the eye out of the eye socket. Oh... So that's, the, that's what you're going for. Wow. Goodness. In 2018, two men in Iceland summoned the police and the Coast Guard after they'd seen a polar bear on a peninsula. And that's oh. obviously incredibly dangerous because they really don't come near humans very often. Eventually, after a lengthy search, the search was called off and the men admitted it may just have been a large sheep. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a lot closer than they thought yeah. it's understandable <laughs> I know how to artificially inseminate a cow based on researching for this podcast cool uh, so this is obviously about pairing sheep up with each other uh, so they can mate properly and dairy cows you do the same thing so I think 75% of dairy cows in this country uh, when they have to be inseminated they get inseminated but just by semen rather than the actual bull and for some reason, I found myself reading this really in-depth farmer's guide to how to do it. And what I didn't realise was, you, so you get a semen gun, uh, which you put the, the semen in. <laughs> and you Imagine you bring your semen gun to a gunfight. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Damn it. 
you bring your semen gun to the insemination fight and but what you do is you have to uh, so there are two entries into a cow uh, so it's much like the humans For, yeah you've got the Front. oh sorry <laughs> There are three There's now. Oh, sorry, there are three. <laughs> We're in Devon. <laughs> Something tells me you're not the biggest expert in this room <laughs> on the number of ways into a cow. <laughs> what? All right, I know the people in Devon know all these secret ways, but there were two entries. <laughs> there were two entries into the back of a cow, officially. Um, and so, you know, one is the rectum, uh, as, as we all have. And Stop, then... Professor, let me write this down. <laughs> Will you be quiet? You've got the rectum, and then you've got the sex tubes, and they're different. <laughs> All right, the cervix. Um, and but what you do is amazingly when you're inseminating a cow, you obviously have to stick the gun in the cervix. But the way you navigate the gun into into the uterine horns, as they're called, um, is you have to put your other arm that's not holding the gun into the rectum. <laughs> <laughs> So you, it's so amazing. And they say you shove your arm into the, insert your arm into the rectum, get someone else to hold the cow's tail aside while you do this. That would be a bald farmer who tried using one foot to to pin the cow's tail. (laughs) This is the worst game of Twister I've ever played. (laughs) It says left hand sex tubes. Anyway, look. It just feels like this lesson isn't going to end. So you essentially use your rectum arm to navigate your semen gun, which is in the vaginal canal, uh, and you push it through. So you, you you got your arm in the rectum, and it's pushing against the other canal so that it gets into the uterus, and it's called recto-vaginal insemination. And that's a lesson over. Enjoy. Oh. <laughs> okay, that is it. That is all. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, please don't. Um, but if you insist, I'm on at Schreiberland, Andy. At Andrew hunter James. At James Harkin. And Chazinski. The authorities should email. Yeah. <laughs> You can email podcast at qi.com. Yeah, or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or our website, no such thing as a fish.com. We have all of our previous episodes up there. We have links to our upcoming tours. We have YouTube videos of Anna showing how to inseminate. <laughs> Thank you so much. Good night. <laughs>